The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So our passage this morning comes from the book of Acts. And it's situated in between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this passage this morning gives us an opportunity to talk about authority, to talk about witness, to talk about the scriptures. All of things which were present in the lectionary readings this morning as well. And what's more, it gives me a fun opportunity to present some statistics about fake news and misinformation. Something that has been sweeping the headlines for the past number of years. So I took the time to do a little bit of research to better understand how widespread and the impacts that fake news, misinformation, and social media are playing with our lives. And it was difficult because of course there's a lot of misinformation about the misinformation. But here are some stats to get us warmed up and understand this issue. It's estimated that in the third quarter of 2020, that's the months of July, August, and September, and if you remember, that was the COVID pandemic was still relatively new and uncertain, and it was the lead up to the United States presidential election. It's estimated that on Facebook alone, there were 1.8 billion fake news engagements of people clicking on, reading, commenting, interacting with in a capacity. It's estimated that since last year, this time, trust in media has dropped 8% across the world. In the United States, it's estimated that on average that 53% of American adults read their news on social media platforms. And what's more, when it aligns with their beliefs, they can't identify it as fake news or not, 56% of them. For a more Canadian uh, perspective, 90% of Canadians use the internet to find information on COVID-19. And 96% of those said they saw some misleading info. We've all seen it. Two in five Canadians admitted to believing that this misinformation was true at first glance, but then later they realized that it was not after a little digging. Only one in five Canadians had a regular habit of checking the sources that they were reading and the information they were coming across on the internet. Most trusted the sources. They didn't think they needed to call them into question or simply they didn't care. What's more, 53% of Canadians have shared content without fact-checking at all. And when they did check, the most common way of determining whether something was true or not was consulting other sources. The Pew Research Center, in conjunction with the BBC, says that truth no longer comes from authorities. Instead, it is collected and networked by groups of peers. We find our truth from our friends, our family, our acquaintances. We don't really trust the higher-ups anymore. And so that brings an important question to us here on this Sunday morning. When it comes to matters of faith, community, livelihood, who do you trust? Who do you listen to? So when you come here to church on a Sunday morning, 
Or perhaps you're listening to sermons throughout the week, engaging with podcasts, reading blogs, reading books. How do you know that you can trust what they're saying? How do you determine if the content you're interacting with that is telling you something about Jesus, the Bible, church, yourself, is right? How do you know that these authors are doing right by Jesus? And I would encourage you to ask yourself right now, why do you trust, if you do, what Hayden or myself brings to you on a Sunday morning? Why do you listen to us? Why do you think that we are trustworthy? It's an important question to ask. Especially given, of course, fake news, misinformation, and on social media you see a lot of people calling into question the integrity of our politicians, of our ministers, of our preachers, the integrity of the Bible and its translations, how it was constructed. Is this really the Bible that best represents Jesus? Because of course we see things like the Da Vinci Code, which accuses the church and Constantine, the emperor at the time in the fourth century, of putting together a Bible that he thought made the most sense for his goals of empire. Or why would we ignore certain gospels like the Gospel of Thomas or the newly discovered Gospel of Judas? Why didn't they make it into the Bible? People love to ask these questions. And I think it's important that we think about why we trust the Bible we have, why we listen to the people we do when they talk about faith. And I don't want to use this sermon to create a bunch of skeptics in all of us, people who are cynical of anyone bringing anything about the faith in the gospel. But I think it is important, especially in this digital age when you can put anything up online without having it peer-reviewed, to just take a moment to step back and think, what are the qualifications, what are the criterion for trusting the words someone is bringing? And so our story in Acts today, in a sense, sets up the criteria for who to listen to. Luke records the purpose of his books, right? The Gospel of Luke, as well as Acts, they form sort of one complete narrative in two parts. So at the beginning of Acts, Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. He wants a record. And at the beginning of, of Luke in chapter 1, he says, I've collected this from eyewitnesses. Luke is very concerned about producing a reliable document, something that his readership can trust from people who saw Jesus. And so that is why it's important to include this small narrative, this small story about choosing the twelfth apostle. It might seem superfluous to us because we never hear of what Matthias does again, so is it really that important that we know who he is? We already know the eleven. Does the twelfth really matter? For Luke, it does. It's important to know exactly who the apostles are, who is gathered, and who fulfills that function. And so, in choosing the twelfth apostle, Luke records 
who they're supposed to be, why they are worthy of the title of apostle. He says that they are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They have seen that Jesus died, was buried, and they interacted with Jesus who has risen again. What's more, they need to know his ministry from the beginning, starting with John's baptism, sort of the preamble. They needed to be aware of the first message. Repent, the kingdom of God is coming. And then to walk with Jesus all the way through death, resurrection, his entire ministry to his ascension. In this way, the twelve have a special resume. It's not just that they know about Jesus, that they've heard about him through travelers, or they they stopped in for just the Sermon on the Mount and missed the rest, or they arrived just at at the resurrection. No, they were with him through the whole thing. They know what he said. They know what he did. They know Jesus intimately, and he knows them. It's much deeper than knowledge. They're apostles by proximity of their relationship to Christ. We can also talk about how the number 12 in itself is significant. The 12 tribes of Israel is a number of completion, and having 12 apostles points to the fulfillment of God's plan for restoration of Israel. But what's more is that the choosing of the 12th, this person who they affirmed knew Jesus and was known by him, that had seen his ministry carried out from beginning to end. What's more, it was verified in community. This was not done in a secret back room with the apostles scheming together, trying to find someone who agreed with all their, their ideas, all their thoughts, their plans, their goals. No, this was done in community. For Luke sets the stage that there were about 120 gathering together. That's a significant number of people. And these 120 people, they vouched for the candidates. When they were put forward to the community, they could say, yes, I recognize Matthias, or I recognized Barsabbas, also known as Justice, also known as Joseph. They know these people. They know that they have walked with Christ. They have seen their life and they affirm their call. It's done in the open. There are no secrets here. And what's more is they make their choice through scripture and prayer. They turn this over to God. They reflect on the written words. They ask God to choose because he knows their hearts. So even if they had their potential favorite, if they preferred Joseph, or they preferred Matthias. They knew it wasn't about their preferences. It wasn't about how they would evaluate who would be the apostle. Because both were good. Both were excellent choices. Both fulfilled the functions, but ultimately the choice was God's. And so they turn it over through the casting of lots. And so we have twelve. We have 12 apostles, 12 witnesses to the death and resurrection, the life and ministry, the glory of Jesus Christ. These 12 who were closest, who knew him best, eyewitnesses to the entirety of his ministry, they would set the standard for teaching. And so they went out. 
You can read the book of Acts. They evangelize, they witness, they teach. They fulfill their function. They fulfill the Great Commission as best they can. They tell the story of Jesus. But the story doesn't finish at the end of Acts. They don't witness about Jesus, tell his story, bring people to repentance in Christ, and then at the end of Acts, Jesus returns. It doesn't end that way. It's open-ended. The witnessing must continue because Christ is not here in the flesh to do it himself. And as time ticks on, the church, the apostles, they begin to think, Jesus isn't coming back in our lifetime, and we're not going to live forever. So how do we ensure that the witness that we are telling of Jesus, the testimony of his life, is going to live beyond us? That truth will be preserved. So when you want your ideas to outlive you, you write them down. And that is how the New Testament starts. Realizing that they are going to need to preserve the stories for future generations, they take to the pen, which Luke illustrates. He does not hide the fact that he is trying to create a reliable witness to the life and ministry of Jesus, to the birth of the early church. And this first part here is about establishing the authority of the apostles. So that as they go out in their ministry, and as we now read about who they were and what they did, we can trust in their word. It sets up a standard for who to listen to. Because false teachers abound in the early church. The idea of fake news of the gospel, of misinformation, of scripture twisting, that is as old as the New Testament church itself. For if you read the epistles, you find countless moments where Paul and the other apostles have to address false teachings. Paul, on a number of occasions, has to defend his credibility against people that would attempt to push his teachings out the window. In Galatians chapters 1 and 2, he tells the story of his conversion by God. He says, this is how I know I have seen the resurrected Christ. And then in chapter 2, he tells about how he was confirmed by the other apostles. He relies upon the community's affirmation of his calling, the community to affirm the message he is teaching. He's not a solo act. In 2 Corinthians, he defends it again in chapter 11. He says that he preaches the gospel free of charge. He's humble. He suffers. He boasts in Christ alone. He contrasts that to the so-called super-apostles, he says. People that likely charged money for a little bit of teaching. Now, you want to hear a sermon? It's 20 bucks at the door. You want a prayer? That's five. But intercession, that could be 15. He says, no, the gospel message came freely from Jesus. God gave his son freely as a gift of grace, so I will preach it the same And so Paul has to take that time to write, to outline those criteria of who to listen to. Anyone that charges you money for the gospel, they're not a credible witness. If they boast in themselves and their own intellect, their own learning and understanding and how great of a Christian they are, they're likely not a Christian. 
they're likely not preaching Jesus crucified. They set the standard for who to listen to by always reflecting it back on Jesus. The apostles are who they are because they know Jesus and witness to him. Paul is an apostle because he knows Jesus and witnesses to him alone. And they recorded that for us to encourage us to listen to those who witness to Christ. It enables the churches to deal with false teachers by comparing to the teachings then of Jesus and the closest and best witnesses to the apostles. We have surviving writings of an early church father called Irenaeus. And Irenaeus is important to us because he learned the gospel from an individual called Polycarp, who is said to have learned from the apostle John, a disciple of Jesus. So in a sense, Irenaeus, as he writes, is the closest connection outside of Scripture that we have to Jesus by virtue of who he learned from. And we trust Irenaeus not only because of who he learned from, but because of the content of his message. And the early church was encouraged to trust his work. To trust in the message he taught. Because, of course, this is all before they had a written Bible. In fact, most people couldn't read, so you had to rely on word of mouth, an oral tradition to share the gospel, common consent that, yes, what we are hearing on a Sunday morning is the word of God. I want to tell you about a fun little story of heresy in the second century by an individual named Marcion. He claimed to be a disciple following the teachings of Paul. So he's claiming authority. But here's what he did. Marcion, in an attempt to establish himself and to establish a church in the way that he liked, he decided he was going to change things a little bit. So for first, he threw out the entire Old Testament. It was not worth anything to him. There was no value. And then he went through the New Testament, and he cut out the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John. He kept Luke, he kept Acts, all the letters of Paul, but he threw out the rest. And what's more, he then went through Luke, Acts, and the letters of Paul, and he cut out all the portions of the Old Testament where they referenced back to God, to the people of Israel. He decided he just didn't like that. He didn't like preaching it. It didn't agree with what he thought God should be because he thought God was of the New Testament was a God of love and would forgive everyone. There is no need for repentance, which the Old Testament points us to. What's more, he claimed secret knowledge, that only a select few could really know what was going on. And this stands in a direct contrast to what Paul says about preaching the gospel freely, which is why you should perhaps listen to him a bit more over those that set up barriers to this knowledge. And so Marcion and his, and his heresies were detrimental to the church. And it's his teachings, the popularity he gained, that the church decided we need to establish our beliefs more firmly. We need to really sit down and let people know what books to trust, to affirm the Old Testament, to write things like the Apostles' Creed so that you can have a quick little way of checking 
that when you hear a message, when you hear someone talk about Jesus, you can recite something like the Apostles' Creed to, I believe Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, and rose again. If anyone is teaching something that contrasts with that, a flag should go up. And that was what the creeds were first written for. This brief summary to separate the church from those that preached the heretical gospels of Marcion. And for a word just about the trust in your Bible, the establishment of our scriptures, it was a gradual process. The Bible wasn't formally put together until about the mid-fourth century, but by then, it was essentially done by common consent. They got together and said, these are the books we use. And everyone looked around and said, we really use those books too. Anyone living in that time, if you presented a bound Bible such as we have here, they would not be surprised at all with what was in there, for they had learned and taught from it forever. The Belgic Confession talks about the sufficiency of Scripture, of its trust and how we interact with it. In Article 7, it says that all we need for salvation is sufficiently taught in Scripture. So if anyone comes to you and says, oh, you know, it's not in the Bible, but, but here's how you come to know Jesus. You know, I, I've got a bit of a different or better understanding. That's a red flag. The Belgic Confession also affirms that we add nothing to it and we take nothing out of it. So once again, if someone comes to you to talk about Jesus and says, well, we don't really like listen to that passage in the middle of Mark or Paul's letter to the Galatians, I find it problematic, so we, we're just going to ignore it. That's a red flag. The Belgic Confession continues by saying that nothing is equal in authority, no matter how holy the author. No one's writings surpass Scripture. Not even our most popular preachers and theologians can claim that their books could replace the Bible. We reject anything that does not agree with this truth, this truth recorded and written down by those who knew Jesus and witnessed him. In that way, no one can claim that authority. I cannot claim to be an apostle because I was not alive in the first century. That writes me out of the equation completely. And so standing here on a Sunday, standing here trying to bring word and truth to my brothers and sisters, I find the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5 to be an important way to orient not only myself, but I would encourage you to use it as a bit of a checkpoint when you are interacting with books, podcasts, sermons, articles. Is this person doing what Paul is doing here. For he says, for we preach not, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as a servant for Jesus' sake. We can start by evaluating the messenger and the message. Is what they are saying, are they preaching a crucified Jesus who has died and risen? We don't preach ourselves. I'm not coming up here to give you the gospel of Ben, not even the gospel according to Ben. I'm here to give you the good news of Jesus, that he died for you, for your sins, and that has been raised to new life and is seated on high 
interceding on our behalf. So any authority that I could possibly hope to claim standing here is nothing to do with who I am or my education or anything of that sort. But hopefully, you can trust me because you can trust that I know Jesus by virtue of the Spirit. And also, by standing in the traditions of the church and its teachings, by standing in that long history of affirming the words of the apostles as found in Scripture, using them as the ultimate measuring stick. For any reforms, any changes that have happened throughout the entirety of 2,000-year church history, any of the good ones, all start with a call back to Scripture. That's how our denomination was born, by looking at Scripture and saying we are not content with how things are. We want to get back to the Bible. And that's how we evaluate the things people say, by coming back to Scripture. First and foremost, that record of apostolic authority and teaching Nothing can compare or compete with Scripture. And so to stand in this tradition of the apostles and the church is to witness to Jesus, his ministry, his teachings, to model ourselves after him. And we don't evaluate on perfection. We don't evaluate who to listen to based on whether they are living the Christian life down to the letter, because none of us can do that. That'd be a standard set up to fail but rather by the grace they teach, by the mercy they call for, and by the humility in which they present themselves, knowing that it is ultimately Christ's word. And if, for instance, throughout this week you go back to your favorite teachers, and you realize that perhaps they don't quite measure up, that they're not fully preaching from the Bible, fully preaching a gospel of free grace and of repentance, then you can leave them. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes that progress, the idea of moving forward, it can seem counterintuitive to think that we have to turn back at some times, that we have to abandon the path we've walked but he says, if you're driving in a car and you make a wrong turn, the most progressive choice you can make is to turn around before going farther down that wrong road. The most progressive is the one who turns back from a bad move first. So it's never a bad move to turn back to Scripture, to turn away from false teachings and misinformation, from fake news about Jesus, and come back to Scripture. Because if we listen to these false messages, if we let them twist and contort our view of Jesus, then we ourselves will become twisted and contorted versions of followers of Christ. So turn around. Come back to Scripture. Come back to evaluating by the witness to the true Jesus. 
because God is gracious to forgive. And he will welcome us back into community, into loving relationship with him with open arms. We don't have to be afraid that we've been duped. So the invitation of Luke this morning is to look, to watch, to listen in all aspects of our life, to see, to look for intently Jesus in everything for that message of grace in a resurrected Savior. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sunday morning, we open up your word, and we are so thankful that we can do that. That for 2,000 years, Christians have sought to preserve your written word so that we could have no doubt in who you are. That we could have no doubt in the ministry of Jesus. That we could have no doubt that we are saved. God Almighty, we thank you for this testimony of grace, and we ask that by the power of your Spirit, we will celebrate next week that you can help teach us, open our eyes, help us to discern who best to listen to, encourage us in our learning. Let us not be filled with fear going forward that we must be suspicious or cynical, but God Almighty, continue to remind us to come back to your word, for which we are immensely thankful for. Amen.